If you are ready to change the way people experience the transition to parenthood, you've come to the right place. On this podcast, we interview postpartum professionals, academics and researchers, as well as parents with unique perspectives on postpartum. Whether you've been working with new families for decades or are brand new to postpartum care, we'd love you to join us. I'm your host, Julia Jones. Hello and welcome to Newborn Mothers Podcast. Today I have with me a good friend and colleague, Antonia. Antonia and I created the Newborn Mothers Breastfeeding Course for Professionals together. Um, and I'll let Antonia introduce herself, but but the reason we're having this podcast is when we were creating the course, we learned a ton. We did heaps of research and, um, you know, just found some really interesting things about breastfeeding particularly when it comes to history, culture and, um, and sort of the social aspects of breastfeeding, as well as the biological aspects of breastfeeding, understanding those two things is really important. And there was a lot we couldn't fit in the course. And so we wanted to uh, just schedule this little chat um, to do a podcast together to add in a little bit of bonus content. So if you like this podcast today, you will love the course. Um, so Antonia, over to you. Do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Hi, Julia. I'll just introduce myself quickly. So I was a postnatal doula for several years now. I live in Canberra, Australia with my partner and our our two kids. And once COVID came along, my life and the way that I work changed quite radically um, in, you know, the way that probably most of us did. And, and so I stopped working with, with clients face to face. So I've been doing a lot more teaching and, and training and, and um, writing my own content. Um, and it was for me a really nice shift because it gave me the chance to do things like creating the breastfeeding course with you and, and having more time to kind of think about um, these concepts and, and how they affect um you know, not just the the few mothers that I have the chance to work with in my small community, but mothers worldwide. Um, so yeah, that's that's um, that's how I came to to this and a little bit of of what I've been doing for the the past few years. Um, and it was amazing creating the breastfeeding course with you because it. I learned so much that I had no idea that I didn't know. Um, and as you said, we just could not fit it all in to the course. There was too much, even just that one module that we have on the culture and history of breastfeeding. I feel like we could create three courses ex- exploring those, those topics. So I'm excited that we have the chance to chat a little bit more today about some of the things that we didn't fit in. Yes, me too. And I'm sure we could even do a, you know, another podcast again, because there's just so much, so much to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, just before we get stuck into that, that topic, I just also want to mention that Antonia was on the podcast way back in episode six. So if anyone wants to kind of go back to the beginning of Antonia's journey and hear where it all started, um, you can, but it's been really a pleasure to see Antonia and so many of my graduates, um, yeah, just really thriving, starting their businesses and within just a few years, really finding their feet and and making good income and supporting a lot of mothers. So, you know, Antonia's done a really amazing job of starting out from from nothing. You were you were a stay at home mum before mm-hmm. before this. And yeah. Um, yeah, it's been amazing to watch your your trajectory. Yeah. And it's so funny because I had no interest in um, babies or motherhood or supporting mothers before I had my own baby. So it was a really 
unexpected career change for me. It was not something that I ever thought that I would get involved in. But once I had babies of my own and went through that experience of breastfeeding and, um, you know, the postpartum time and the support or lack of support, um, it really opened up this whole new interest for me. And, and, um, and, you know, as a, as a career opened a lot of doors, um, meeting people and, and meeting um, professionals working in areas that I hadn't even imagined existed. So I'm so glad I came across you, Julia. <laughs> I think I, I came am, across your recipe book first, and that was what led me into your other work. Yes, I remember that. You were in, in the yoga class with someone who, who talks about recipe, my recipe book a lot. So that was very fortuitous because here we are now with this amazing course, which I couldn't have written on my own because, um, yes, I definitely don't feel like I, I have the skills in breastfeeding that you have to be able to pull this all together. So one of the things that we really learned a lot about was um, when we were looking at these more cultural, social, historical aspects of breastfeeding was the rise of the dairy industry and how that influenced formula production. Um, so do you want to speak a little bit about that? Yeah, um, the relationship of the dairy industry to breastfeeding is it's almost invisible today because we don't talk about it very much. And, and most people aren't really aware of this whole, um, you know, kind of iceberg underneath what, what we can see in, in our personal experience. But if you think about it, um, even having a dairy industry is, is fairly modern in terms of our time here as humans on this planet earth. So, you know, agriculture has been around for 12 to 15,000 years. So that's like 1% of our time on earth. So for all of these years, for 99% of our time, humans have survived without drinking cow's milk. And then even once people in certain areas did start drinking cow's milk and, and um, you know, goat's milk and, and other animal milks, it was quite a dangerous food because of course, fresh milk is a breeding ground for, um, for bacteria. So it's not something you can just keep around in, in your cupboard. Um, so, you know, for example, things like tuberculosis, um, uh, you know, up until the 1930s, um, when pasteurization became more common, I, I think it was around 30% of, of tuberculosis deaths were caused by drinking milk. Um, so it was not, you know, kind of this, this necessary, um, part of our diet. And even today, you know, it's, it's not essential as a food, but it shows up on the food pyramid. People are taught that dairy products are an essential part of our diet. So this isn't that something changed in our biology. It isn't that we evolved to need milk. It's that we were, um, we were sold a story. It's, it's a massive, you know, marketing story that has been going, going on for um, a couple of hundred years or, or a bit more um, now um, where we're, we're sold the story that dairy is, is essential. Um, yes. And what you're saying about milk being in, you know, back in the, the old days, a very unsafe food, we would never have fed it to babies it, it, unless that baby was literally going to die. Like it's not something yeah. you'd ever unless choose. You absolutely had to, if you yeah. didn't have, um, you know, a wet nurse or a friend or a sister or a mother or a grandmother on hand, if you were very unusual in that situation that you couldn't access another breastfeeding woman, then you might feed your babies um, animal's milk. But 
that if you were lucky, you owned a cow or a donkey or a goat and you fed that baby sometimes straight from the teat or you would, you know, milk that that cow and give the baby fresh milk. Um, but if you weren't so lucky, you would have to buy cow's milk and it could be hours old, it could be days old. And, and so it was extremely dangerous and it wasn't something that people were choosing to do in the way that, um, you know, um, we're, we're told that women choose not to breastfeed today, which is kind of another part of the, the story that we're, that we're sold. Um, yeah, let's just touch on that briefly before we keep going. But this idea that women choose to breastfeed or can't breastfeed or, or don't want to breastfeed, it's, you know, today, um, I think one in three women meet their own breastfeeding goals. And I think I was, I think, I hope I'm remembering this number, but only 16% of women are still breastfeeding at six months, um, exclusively breastfeeding at six months, which is very low. Um, but we still have this idea that it's the mother's fault that somehow she's made bad decisions or she didn't try hard enough rather yeah. than thinking, hang on, if it's this common, maybe there's actually some social aspects to this story, um, as well. So that's why it's really important to look at the influences of things like the dairy industry. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. And, and often mothers do blame themselves and, um, and if they're busy blaming themselves, then they can get stuck in that self-blame and it's much more effective if we can break out of that and, and get a little bit curious, you know, well, why, why didn't breastfeeding work out? It's, it's not because um, I'm somehow fundamentally flawed. It's not because there's something wrong with my body. That just doesn't make sense. Like humans didn't evolve to be so, so badly put together that breastfeeding would be a huge problem. Um, so if a woman is unable to breastfeed, there is a social aspect to it. And it's not accidental. Um, oftentimes it's, it's deliberate. So for example, um, hospitals who receive funding from um, companies that are associated with formula production, those hospitals might be deliberately designed so that the babies um, were, were kept in nurseries quite far away from the mothers. So straight away, they're, are, they're breaking that, that connection um, between the mother and the baby. And it's much, much harder to, um, to establish breastfeeding successfully if you have to wait 20 minutes for your baby to be brought to you. So those kind of um, designs were very, very deliberate. It wasn't, um, you know, it's, it's not happening because of a lack of understanding of, of breastfeeding in, in many cases. Um, formula companies and, and um, businesses that make profits off of artificial breast milk being sold to mothers um, do a ton of research about breast milk, about how it works, about how breastfeeding works, so that they can then sabotage those natural um, connections and, um, and provide the, the solution, which is formula. I remember that quote you mentioned in the course. Do you remember it off the top of your head, but that was the head of a formula company? It was something like um, they were talking about um, how profits had been, you know, not as, not as good as they had hoped the previous year, but in, in the year that they were going into um there because of, of like the economic downturn, they were seeing more women return to the workplace. So he said something like, um, we, we hope and we wish that this will mean that more women will fail to breastfeed 
and we'll we'll then you know buy our product yeah, buy our product <laughs> and, and it was very clear i wish i could remember the the quote um we'll maybe put it in the show notes yeah, yeah yeah um it it was just it was so chilling to read and there's a lot of of those that information is out there if you go and and look at the transcripts from um you know meetings and symposiums and and um and conversations that people are having at, at these high levels in the dairy industry, in the in the formula industry, and they're they're very clear about talking about ways to sabotage those natural breastfeeding um, um, connections and the requirements that are um, that are in place for for breastfeeding to be successful. And that's quite confronting. It's not nice to hear. And it's, I think sometimes it's easier for women to believe that their bodies were somehow at fault than that there's this whole system that is profit-based and the, you know, the well-being of the mother and child is, is not a priority when compared to those profits. No. And I love the way you phrased it too, that, um, yeah, that that they know how breastfeeding works. They, it's not, uh, you know, it's not a mistake that this is happening. They're deliberately researching and understanding breastfeeding so they can stop it from happening. Um, can you go back a little bit to the dairy industry and how that then, you know, how that came became formula? Yeah. So around the um, early 1900s, a couple of things were at play. So there was a mechanization of the dairy process, like the, the you know, process of milking cows and getting the product to market. So instead of doing everything by hand, you now have these machines doing a lot of the work. And so they're ending up with a lot of excess products. So we've got all this surplus. And then um, around the time of the Great Depression in the USA, especially what happened was that um, dairy farmers were being subsidized by the government. Um, and then the government had to do something with all the excess milk. So those, those things, the mechanization and the, the economic downturn contributed to this um, kind of phenomenon of all of a sudden having a lot of excess dairy milk. So what do we do with all this cow's milk? We don't want to just throw it away. Well, let's make it, um, you know, the main ingredient in breast milk substitute because it's cheap and because it's plentiful. Um, because I think, I think people sometimes have this assumption that we use cow's milk because it's good for babies or because it is the closest thing to human breast milk. And that's not the case at all. It's just cheap and there's a lot of it. If we really wanted to um, find a substance that was as close to human breast milk as possible, we would look to the primates. We would look to our evolutionary cousins. We wouldn't be out there going, oh, well, let's find this animal that eats grass and has multiple stomachs and hooves. It just, it doesn't make any sense. But no, but people would be horrified at the thought of drinking orangutan milk or oh, gorilla yeah. milk like that you know <laughs> people listening to this would be just like that is insane but really you know it's, yeah. it's not <laughs> any more insane than drinking cow's milk <laughs> yeah it's like you go to a different country and you're served a food that isn't typical for for your country and it you have this kind of visceral revulsion like oh that's gross i would never eat you know snakes or turtles or snails or or monkeys brains or whatever it is and it's not things aren't fundal, fundamentally disgusting it's just that we're culturally conditioned to 
you know, have that ick factor or not have that ick factor. Yeah, and we're culturally conditioned to think that cow's milk is a, is a, like a staple food for humans. Yeah. And women are told that they have to be like cows, like this kind of image of a woman pl- breastfeeding and being very placid and relaxed and gentle. But why, you know, why don't we tell women, well, you have to be like a tiger when you're breastfeeding, you have to be really fierce and and predatory, or you have to be like a bat when you're breastfeeding, you have to hang upside down, you know, all mammals breastfeed. So we've really created this social story where women are cows. Yeah, 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 exactly. And even now, I know a lot of the breastfeeding research that we have is based on lactation in in cows, because we want to be able to promote cows um, breast milk supply. So a lot of the things that we learn about promoting milk supply in humans comes from the dairy industry as well, which is yeah a little bit depressing. <laughs> it does. And we know so much more about cow's milk than we do about human's milk. Um, it's, it's really a mystery in many ways. I was reading some interesting articles about some of the research that's being done nowadays on breast milk, and there's just so much more to, to learn and understand. And there are so many areas that are just like these great, you know, dark spaces of mystery. We have no idea how to even figure out what's going on there. And I think it would be easy to look at that and go, well, we have no idea how breastfeeding works. So, you know, how can we say that, that it's better than anything else, but, we don't need to understand how breast milk works or all the components or have, you know, unpacked the the DNA to know that it's the biological norm. So it's really upside down this idea that we have to prove the benefits of breast milk. We don't do that with any other body parts. We're not going around saying, oh, well, you know, you could just wear a wig instead of grow your hair. We should have to prove the benefits of, of having your natural hair, or we should have to prove the benefits of having your natural ears instead of everyone having prosthetic ears fitted just as a regular thing. It's, it's bizarre. We don't do that with other parts of our biology. Um, no, birth is the only time, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. yeah, birth and breastfeeding. And that, and that language was something that was... Um, it's been influenced by the formula industry, by the dairy industry, by the soybean industry, which also has a huge vested interest um, in, in women, you know, um, continuing to buy formula. So this, this language of breastfeeding has benefits rather than um, not breastfeeding carries risks. That was something that was debated and, and um, you know, unfortunately, um, we, we weren't able to, um, to kind of, um, you know, make, make it normal to talk about the risks of not breastfeeding because that was considered um, too confronting. It might make women feel guilty and it's, it might, um, you know, put economic hardship on the dairy industry and, and other um, big business. So it was, this language was deliberately put into place. Yeah, I think something that's really interesting to take note of is all of the time that we're blaming individual mothers and and setting mums up to have this, you know, this individual fight. I need to learn how to breastfeed. I need to overcome the odds and it's my responsibility and it's my problem and it's my fault and all of this kind of thing. It's turning us away from understanding this system so that we can actually change it forever for everyone. Um, And that's where we really need to be putting our our energy. Um, Can you talk a little bit about I'm curious because these two things sort of 
happen in sync and I don't know if they're really related I've never thought about it before but the sexualization of breasts mm-hmm. um seems to kind of rise at around the same time as as the dairy industry is that just me drawing those two things together I don't know I, I think um there's a lot of complex factors that at play because yeah it did happen around the same time um and it may be a case of well, which came first, the, the chicken or the egg, because that was around the time that that women were having to separate um, from their babies rather than taking their breastfeeding babies um, along with them to workplaces. Um, it's all just the patriarchy. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's all just patriarchy. Um, but yeah, breasts did become sexualized. And in now it's so ingrained it's so much a part of our culture that it's hard for us to even believe that it's not just innately biological um but it is there are many many cultures where breasts don't have that that um you know connection with sex probably less so these days because western culture has kind of spread to many corners of the globe but in the 1950s when um a couple of anthropologists were doing um, were doing studies um, with hundreds of different cultures about the way that sex was perceived. They were really interested um, to find that there's a very small number of, of cultures at the time. I think it was like three out of 90 something um, that connected um, breasts with sexual arousal and sexual attraction. Um, and, and even, you know, at, at that time that they were that they were doing that study, cultures where physical appearance was not connected with sexual attraction. So how's that for a mm-hmm. mind blowing concept? It's, it's almost, you know, you think, well, well, what what could it be related to if not physical appearance? Because it's just so it's everywhere in our society. Mm. So it's. You know, breasts are are not a primary sexual characteristic. They're a secondary sexual characteristic, just like the Adam's apple for men or pubic hair um, or a deep voice. But we don't we don't sort of um, connect those things with with sex in the same thing that we do breasts. So we don't use, you know, tufts of pubic hair to sell cars. We don't um, have <laughs> men cover up their their Adam's apples when they when they leave the house because it would be um, sexually arousing for women on the street to see them um, walking around with their <laughs> I love these examples that you're giving, Antonia. It helps people just really understand how absurd it is for us to think that breasts are inherently sexual. Yeah. Um, because they weren't and you know people today you can still find cultures that don't sexualize breasts I know that when you travel to Bali these days still if you go to the villages there are a lot of women who will walk around the older women not the younger women but the older women who've been doing it for their whole lives they just walk around with a sarong and no top on that's how they've always just walked around their villages and you know so you don't have to go very far to still find um, these things but it, yeah, it becomes so ingrained, doesn't it? It's hard to, to imagine or, or remember that it could ever be another way. Are you listening to this awesome interview with a postpartum professional and thinking that this might be your calling in life too? Do you believe postpartum care could be a respected, valued and well-paid profession, but feel frustrated and don't know where to start? 
Newborn Mothers Collective is online worldwide postpartum training and professional development with over a thousand students from 40 different countries around the world. We value human rights, scientific evidence and diversity and we'd love you to join us at newbornmothers.com. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's had such a big effect on women's comfort and willingness to breastfeed because when you're making yourself sexually vulnerable, every time you do the normal act of feeding your baby, it becomes a lot more complex. Um, and so I think this sexualization of, of breasts and of breastfeeding as well as, as an act has made it really difficult for women unnecessarily. It's created this barrier to women just feeding out and about and in their public spaces. Every time a woman, you know, breastfeeds in parliament or breastfeeds as, as part of her job, it makes headlines. Mm. Um, so it's, yeah, it has a massive impact and that's a social thing. It's not a biological thing. It's not something that we've evolved for some good reason. Um, it's just a cultural belief. And if we waved our magic wand right now and we got rid of that, that cultural belief that breasts are inherently sexy, then overnight we would see a, a huge increase in women successfully breastfeeding. Yes, because I see it a lot even in women's homes because women have a lot of visitors when they have a baby, especially they might have like their father-in-law visiting or something like that. They don't really feel that comfortable. And when you're learning to breastfeed, you do just need to have your boobs out a lot all the time, all day and all night. You know, they just have to be boobs everywhere. So, you know, it doesn't take much even in a woman's home. You know, you only need a few visitors or a trip to the supermarket and suddenly it becomes much more hard to learn um, how, how to breastfeed. So all of this kind of happens in sync with this sort of greater sort of patriarchal shift as well. Um, and, and it happened in birth too, this idea of the shift from the feminine ownership of this knowledge um, to the more masculine ownership of this knowledge, a shift from midwives to doctors. Um, and the way that women, yeah, the, the way that women have been oppressed and, and it's very, it's, it's all happening kind of at the same time. So it's, it's a big picture, but can you talk a little bit about that, that aspect as well, as well? Yeah. Um, again, I, I think it is one of those things that is, it's like the, the iceberg beneath the, the water. People don't really think about how, um, you know, their experience of patriarchy is, is affecting their everyday decisions and their, their everyday experience. Um, and I remember there's this story um, that um, Jennifer Grayson, who's the author of, of um, the book Unlatched, it's a, a wonderful book that I, I used a lot in, in researching um, for the breastfeeding course, but she went through this process where she was interviewing um, everyone that she knew about their breastfeeding experience. So she went and actually interviewed her mother um, who had been breastfeeding, um, I think it would have been like the early 70s. And her mother said that part of the reason why she didn't breastfeed is that um, her, her partner, her husband, um, so, um, you know, Jennifer Grayson's father, that he saw her breasts as 
sexual and, and that he felt really awkward about her breastfeeding because it was going to affect his, his access to her as, as, a, as a sexual um, partner. And I'm just laughing, imagining how awkward this conversation would be to, you know, to have with your mother. Um, but she didn't stop there. So she then went and interviewed her father and asked him. And he had a slightly different story. He did not remember um, ever saying anything about the sexual aspect. He didn't even remember expressing an opinion about her mother breastfeeding. He just kind of said, oh, well, you know, people didn't really breastfeed at that time. And it wasn't really, you know, it was kind of a hippie thing to do. And, and in his memory, it was just kind of what happened. He didn't see himself as having influenced her decision, but in, in the mother's experience, it was very clearly influenced by her husband's opinion. And, and at that time she said that she, you know, wanted to be a good wife and, and that she felt subservient to him in, in, in that way. So, those social influences can be really subtle. It's not as, as obvious as, you know, someone being aggressive and saying, no, you're forbidden to breastfeed. How dare you? Your breasts belong to me. And it's, it's not so cartoonish. It's just, you know, people having conversations, people letting their opinions show in a, in a subtle way. And, you know, you mentioned um, someone breastfeeding in front of their father-in-law, just those subtle feelings of approval or disapproval or embarrassment are having an effect on people's decisions. And it's not always a conscious decision. Um, Yes, which is why we teach so strongly in the collective for for professionals to really dissemble those emotions because, mm. you know, newborn mothers are biologically our brains are designed to respond to nonverbal cues more once we've had a baby. That's how our brain changes um, one of the ways. And so as professionals, we do a lot of training and learning around not raising our eyebrows, not rolling our eyes, mm. not tensing or holding our breath because all of those things even if we don't intend it even if we aren't aware of it the the mothers will still pick it up and and so this is exactly what's happening on a broader cultural um level as well particularly if we've got you know a, a whole generation uh, our parents who perhaps didn't breastfeed very much you know at all and so they've got all of these biases and and their own even their own guilt or shame or um you know disgust or whatever it, it, their kind of emotional experiences were yeah it doesn't take much does it to to put no, a mum off no and you you can't um underestimate the value of those social connections for a woman um and that's that's one of the other things that's going on in, in a postpartum brain is that those social connections are even more important to her and, and she's better at forming those connections. And so how can you say to a woman, how can you sort of expect a woman to breastfeed when to do so would be going against everything that her social support system is telling her? I worked with a, a client once who um, had made the decision not to breastfeed before her baby was born. And, and she, she volunteered the information. I didn't ask why, um, because it's a very, you know, everyone's circumstances are, are individual. I never want, um, you know, women to feel that they're being pressured to breastfeed, but she volunteered the information that she was planning um, not to breastfeed because her mother and sister hadn't breastfed. And 
that is a really valid reason. We can't discount that and say, oh, women just need, you know, more education or they need more information because it doesn't matter how much, um, you know, a mother or potent or a um, expectant mother knows about the benefits of breastfeeding or the risks of artificial feeding. If to, to choose to breastfeed is going to affect her relationship with her mother or her sister or her mother-in-law, that's a really big ask. So we can't have this focus on educating women as if they're making this decision in a void. Um, we need to be educating their social support system as well. And we need to be providing them with support, with true support, not just pressure saying you must breastfeed or else you've failed or you know, you haven't tried hard enough um, because that's the story that they're often being told. Absolutely. And on that note, I just want to let all of our listeners know that we have another free breastfeeding resource as well that we've put out um, as a sort of a bonus to this course, which is a, a video that Antonia's made on the website. It's on our blog. That is a, a video for support people. It's breastfeeding basics to, to kind of show your village um, just the, just what they need to know about breastfeeding in order to support you because, um, yeah, it is ridiculous really to, to treat women as though they're breastfeeding in a vacuum. It's just not how, how it works. Yeah. Um, another topic we got really excited about and learned heaps about was milk sharing. Um, we've talked a lot about this in, in the collective and throughout general postpartum discussions, the idea of alloparenting uh, and alloparenting by extension means, you know, allo breastfeeding. It means that we're not just parenting our own children, but we're parenting all of the children in our community and breastfeeding all of the children in our community. I actually met a, a, an Aboriginal woman, a Noongar woman um, at a conference recently, and she breastfed her own children she breastfed her sister's children and she breastfed her grandchildren um you know so when i was talking about allo parenting she's just like yeah yeah this is normal for us <laughs> so there are still many people many cultures that this is normal um but for us this idea of milk sharing again it's a little bit like drinking orangutan milk we have this yeah. kind of revulsion towards yeah. it <laughs> big factor and people go oh is that safe and can't you catch diseases and isn't it disgusting and you may feel that way and, and your feelings are, are valid, but they're not science. They're not biology. And it's those feelings are created by the, the social structure that we're born into. So um, no, it's not particularly risky to, um, to have a baby who is being breastfed by a lot of um, different women. Um, in fact, it, it confers additional immunity on that baby. Um, it's also good for the women to, um, to breastfeed, um, you know, for um, longer periods throughout their lifespan. Um, because yeah, let's, let's talk about that for a minute, because we yeah, talk yeah. about the benefits of breastfeeding for babies a lot. But yeah, let's talk about the benefits of breastfeeding for mums. What does it mean when you breastfeed more children for longer? Okay, I want to can I reframe that? And yes, what does it mean when you don't breastfeed? Um, you know, what, what does it mean when you limit your breastfeeding experience or when you don't breastfeed at all? So if you don't breastfeed or if you limit the time, it increases your risk of breast cancer. It increases risk of ovarian cancer, um, osteoporosis, uh, hypertension, heart attacks. Um, so all these, these quite serious health conditions, um, the risk is increased when women are 
not breastfeeding or, or when they're, when their you know, experience of breastfeeding is limited to a few weeks rather than the, um, you know, the biological norm of, um, at least, you know, a couple of, of years. Um, and of course that has a, a cost, like a, a financial cost as well. So it's billions of dollars, um, could be saved if women were supported to, to breastfeed, you know, according to that normal biological standard. And I just want to, highlight that, again, women should not be blamed for this. Individual women, um, you know, should, should not feel like there's this burden of responsibility or that they've harmed their own health by not breastfeeding because it is, it is not an in individual task. It's, it's, um, it, it's a social event. Breastfeeding is, is, a, is something that um, if women aren't given the support to do, then you know, they, they haven't failed. It's, it's, it's a really insidious, um, horrible belief, um, that women should be responsible for their, their own breastfeeding, um, you know, duration and, and success and, and all of that. So, oh, so we should feel yeah. let down, but you know, by our society, but not personally responsible. And yeah. I'll also add to that the way that statistics work, a lot of people get a bit scary. If you hear, mm. like, I didn't breastfeed, and that means my risk of cancer's increased, it doesn't mean that you're going to get cancer. It might no. mean that instead of a one in a hundred chance, it's a two in a hundred chance, you're still yeah. probably not going to get cancer. So, yeah. it doesn't yeah. mean that individually your chances have, have increased. It's, it's, more looking at it across a population so yes, yes of thousands of people so this is important at a government level it's important at a policy and health um, promotion level it's but as an individual you know it's unlikely to affect you yeah yeah that's right uh, which is why it's so important we talk about these things at a big big picture level so sorry back to milk sharing we, we don't really do that now. It's very rare for someone to feed uh, in my culture, for someone to feed another baby directly from their breast. And the way that milk sharing works these days tends to be people will, will pump milk and, you know, store it in their freezer or take it to a milk bank or, uh, or give it to a friend. So what's the safety around that? Because that's obviously, you know, like we were talking about how dangerous cow's milk um, mm -hmm. was. So what's different um, well, in, in those terms, nothing's different in that you need to store the milk safely. Um, you can't just leave it out. Um, so it does need to be refrigerated and, and frozen safely. Some women, when they're receiving, um, donated breast milk, they like to just, um, boil it quickly. So, you know, engage in a pasteurization process, um, just as an extra layer of protection. But as far as the milk itself, um, what, what the risk factors are, um, it's very, very low. There's, there's never been a single reported case that I know of um, in, in the research that I've done where a baby was sickened through drinking donated breast milk. There have been some cases through a milk bank. Um, and I'll just quickly explain the difference because milk sharing and milk bank um, sound very much the same. So when we're talking about milk banks, that is um, a, a formalized process. It, it's usually, you know, an organization that might be a charity or it might be run through the hospital. So mothers are still, um, you know, expected to donate the milk, but the milk is then either sold or it's given to um, 
to the babies who are, are deemed to be at the most risk. So often it's quite hard um, for families to access the breast milk from a, a, a milk bank if they don't um, kind of meet the, the criteria of that particular model. Um, formula companies also purchase breast milk from milk banks um, to use for their own research to try and break down the ingredients and, and mimic those or, or say that they've added ingredients to artificial breast milk that is in human milk. Um, so uh, with milk sharing, then typically when we're talking about milk sharing, we're talking about a person-to-person -person agreement. So this is not a regulated industry. This is a you know, grassroots organization. Um, the, the most popular one that people might have heard of is Human Milk for Human Babies. Um, and they're on Facebook. So you can find your, your local um, group by typing in um, Human Milk for Human Babies and, um, and then you know, the name of, of wherever you live and your group will pop up. And, and how that works is that um, people who are looking for breast milk um, can just put out a request and people who are nearby who want to donate breast milk would make that connection with them personally. So they would meet or um, you know, somehow get the milk to each other. And the onus then is really on um, the individuals to make sure that they're using common sense guidelines, that they're, um, that they're being hygienic, that they're asking questions, um, you know, like, um, are you a non-smoker and, and what sorts of things do you eat and, and anything that might influence their decision to accept breast milk from that other family. Typically you wouldn't pay. So this is a purely, you know, neighbor to neighbor um, um, act of, of gift giving. Um, and yeah, there's no incentive for mothers who are donating milk through a milk sharing organization. They're not getting paid for it. So there's no incentive for them to cut corners or to, um, to mix cow's milk with the human breast milk as has sometimes been found in milk banks where you pay for the milk because they, um, you know, obviously as soon as you introduce profit into the equation, people are going to try and reduce the amount of effort that it takes to make the same amount of profit. Yes, and I'll just point out that in Australia, it, uh, we have laws preventing people from selling any kind of um, bodily part, whether that's organs or milk or blood donations. It's um, it's against the law to pay for that. Not It's not the case in other parts of the world. So depending where you live, you might need to kind of just look into that. Yeah, but it's, it's interesting because if you think about it, um, if milk sharing were more common and if um, if we you know could get beyond um, just expressing milk and giving it to someone else and actually just feed the baby um, and you know cut out that whole middle step it would solve a lot of breastfeeding challenges for mothers and for babies because imagine if every time you were struggling to breastfeed for some reason, or you were a new parent and, and things just weren't going right, how much pressure would it lift off of your shoulders to be able to say to your friend, hey, can you just breastfeed my baby for me for a few hours while I rest my nipples and, you know, get a little bit of 
sleep and then come back to this with it with a clear head you wouldn't be worrying that your baby was going to be stop was going to starve you wouldn't be thinking oh i'm a terrible mother because i can't feed my baby and the responsibility rests only on me um it would be a massive you know, benefit to, to be able to, to have that peace of mind. And then you could also practice breastfeeding with an experienced baby. If you were a new mother and vice versa, baby who was struggling to breastfeed, maybe it's a good idea to get a very experienced breastfeeding mother to have a go with that particular baby um, to, you know, increase. Yeah. So you're not both learning at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But you know, it's, it's such an obvious solution and yet, because of the ick factor, it's unlikely to happen overnight. You know, we can't just say to thousands of Australian women, oh, just, you know, let your friends breastfeed your babies or, you know, oh, you're breastfeeding a baby. Why don't you offer to feed everyone's baby, you know, next time you go to the playground with your toddler? Why don't you just offer your breast to the random lady sitting next to you on the bench? It's just it's a huge cultural shift. So it's not something that can happen overnight, but if it did, it would eradicate the need for artificial breast milk and it would, you know, um, solve all those problems. It would, it would reduce the, the billions of dollars that are, are spent on, on healthcare um, that's needed because of, of um, not breastfeeding. So yes, it, it would yeah. reduce a lot of barriers to milk sharing as well, because a lot of women can't express a lot of milk, even if they, they can make a lot of milk for the baby that, you know, when you pump, it just doesn't work as well. It's not yeah. as efficient. Or it's a lot of work too. It's, it's a, mm. it's a big, you have don't to clean everything. Effort. And yeah. yeah. So imagine if you could just say, Oh, look, I don't have time to express for you, but why don't you just um, let me have your newborn for a couple of, of hours? Yeah, absolutely. Yes, that would be so much easier. Yes. And cheaper. Plus, you wouldn't have the barriers of of like storing the milk and making sure it's kept at the right temperature and, you know, it's not too old and all of that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just it's such a great example of a situation in which like science and logic say one thing, but culture and society say another thing mm, have undermined it just go ah it's disgusting and and to the point where people don't even realize now like i've heard other women saying thank god for formula my baby would have died if formula hadn't been invented it's like and i'm kind of like no they wouldn't you would have just had your sister feed your baby or something you know like yeah i'm sure it would have been fine yeah, and i've heard also and um, people who who work in in child care and have to handle express breast milk they're asked to follow certain hygiene guidelines. So, you know, wearing latex gloves or, um, you know, washing their hands. And I've had conversations with people who believed that that was because the breast milk was somehow infectious or they would catch Mm. something from it. And of course it's not, it's because we don't want the breast milk to, to become, um, you know, for people to be touching it with dirty hands or, or because we're um, protecting the breast milk, protecting the breast milk from the people, not the other way around, but because people are so used to thinking of, you know, blood, for example, as, as something that you just don't touch because you could get an infection, they kind of put breast milk in the same category. So yeah, it's just another belief, which um, people probably don't even think about consciously, but really determines the you know the way that we act about breastfeeding 
Yes, and a lot of people don't realize just how how um, breasts filter the milk very well. Um, you know, so for example, if you drink during pregnancy, we all know that can be very harmful to the baby. But in fact, if you drink alcohol when you're breastfeeding, uh, very little of that alcohol actually gets into the, the milk mm -hmm. by comparison to blood. So, you know, your, your boobs do a really, really good job of filtering out all sorts of things and, and the milk that your baby gets is is very, very clean. Yeah, yeah. And even a tiny amount of alcohol um, that does make it to, to your baby's brain is less harmful than artificial breast milk, than formula. Mm. So even if you do get really drunk one night and you're breastfeeding your baby, it's not ideal, but the risk factor is, is much lower. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So again, we've just way overemphasized the risks of, of breast milk. We've over-sexualized breasts. We've separated mums from their babies. We, you know, think that breastfeeding is disgusting. And yet, and yet we still blame mothers when they don't manage to do it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, cool. I think we've covered everything I wanted to ask you about. Was there anything that we missed? Um, I think... Yeah, we have covered a lot. Um, I think I just want to end with saying that women don't choose to breastfeed or not breastfeed feed in the same way that they choose to paint their nursery walls green or yellow or pink or blue, yet it's often framed as a choice. And I think that's really dangerous because it's not a personal choice when women are are saying that the reason they couldn't breastfeed was because um, they had to go back to work three weeks after their baby was born or they weren't allowed to take um, breaks during work to, um, to to feed their baby or that their partner didn't want them to breastfeed because um, it would affect their sexual relationship or because um, they felt embarrassed feeding their baby in public. Those are not choices on the same level as, do I prefer green or yellow? Those are, those are social structures that are impacting that woman's ability to make an informed choice and to make um, choices that are beneficial. So, yeah. And even to make the choice that she wants to make, even a lot of women will try really hard to breastfeed and, and yeah. still not be able to because there's just too many barriers in their way. Yeah. Even yeah. when they do make the choice to breastfeed, you know. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I think that's really important to keep in mind. Uh, and so, you know, for people listening, if you didn't breastfeed, um, yeah, know that there's a lot more, you know, that there's a lot more underneath that iceberg than, than we can easily understand at a glance. Thank you so much, Antonia. If people want to learn more, um, you can find out more at newbornmothers.com. We have the breastfeeding uh, course for professionals, um, which is recognised by the Australian College of Midwives. We cover, obviously, a lot of the biological aspects of, of breastfeeding, but also we do cover a lot of these social, um, emotional evolutionary biological you know like we, we it's a very comprehensive course and we wanted to make sure we looked at it from all those different angles thank you for sharing and um yeah we'll see you next time see you next time julia thanks so much this has been really really fun to chat about all this stuff thank you bye bye 
Here at Newborn Mothers, we believe that every family has the right to high quality postpartum care. If you want to join us, learn more at newbornmothers.com. And if you like this podcast, we'd really love you to leave us a five-star review and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.